you're never going to outcost the Chinese or you're never going to outcost the Koreans, right? Those they can, they can suck costs out of a manufacturing facility. Like there's no one's business. Therefore, in order to compete, you need to innovate. And one part of innovation is actually getting the, the innovation to market much more quickly. And you're only going to do that by co-locating research and development with R&D. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76. When you think about manufacturing across seas, the advantage that comes to mind, of course, is cost savings. And sure, it's pretty dang tough to beat those cost numbers that show up on your P&L. But what about the things that don't show up on your P&L, or at least directly? Supply chain challenges and inefficiencies the impact of a higher quality product, employee satisfaction, the ability to innovate. And that one in particular, innovation, is what my guest today is going to talk about. He'll explain what happens when your R&D and your manufacturing operations are located across the hall from each other instead of across the ocean from each other. So let me introduce him. Martin DeBono began his career in alternative energy in a somewhat unorthodox place as a decorated officer on a nuclear submarine in the U.S. Navy. Martin has held sales and marketing positions at various tech companies, including Cisco, Siebel, Insightful, and Pure Networks. Prior to running GAF Energy, Martin headed SunPower's residential North American business and global commercial business and served as president of SunPower Capital. He's also a member of Phi Beta Kappa and has a BS from the University of North Carolina and an MBA from Harvard University. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, Martin, can you kick things off by telling our listeners just a little bit about GAF Energy and also what led you to your current role as president there? Absolutely. GAF Energy's mission is to drive energy from every roof. We're an operating company in the standard industry family of companies. Standard industry owns the largest roofing companies in the world. They own GAF in the United States. They own BMI in Europe. And collectively, those are the number one roofing companies in each of those geographies. GF Energy is another independent operating company looking to capitalize on the fact that the roof is the ideal place from which to generate electricity, and we're creating products that enable roofers and consumers to do so. I ended up in, uh, at this point in my career, uh, I guess it was a circuitous path, as you mentioned in the intro. I started as a nuclear submarine officer. After that, I was in a variety of different uh, tech companies, both small and large. And one day was called by a recruiter who said, hey, are you interested in uh, solar? And at the time I was very interested in solar, but I didn't realize that it was commercially viable. And this was in 2013. Once I understood that solar actually was commercially viable, it's been one of the most uh, exciting chapters of my career. Spent five years at SunPower and then three years at GF Energy. Uh, and at GF Energy, we've just launched a, a revolutionary new product, uh, Nailable Solar Shingle. And so really looking forward to seeing the success that has and hopefully it will make renewable energy more mainstream amongst consumers in the United States at first, and then ultimately uh, worldwide. Awesome. Well, I imagine it's a pretty exciting sector to be in right now. 
it's all changing so fast. And I know you, you guys had a, have just launched a new product, which is off to a hot start in the new year here. So congratulations on that as well. Yeah. So we just, we launched a product uh, last week. So seven days ago, launched a product. And what was nice about this launch and how I've been in Silicon Valley or associated with Silicon Valley companies ever since I left the Navy, there's a lot of vapor out there. There's a lot of launches for things that will be available in the future. When we launched this product, we'd already manufactured it, shipped it, installed it. And because it's a residential building product, permitted and had inspections passed. So it was a legit product, but we were able to keep the wraps on it. And so at the Consumer Electronics Show where we launched it, we received rave reviews. We won awards from Good Housekeeping to VentureBeat to CES itself gave us a, a best in show for smart home category. So the product is off to a very solid start. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, one of which is probably relevant to your audience is people like the fact that it's made here in the United States and uh, looks great and was installed by uh, local uh, professionals. So Martin, it's that's a good lead into the next question and what really caught my attention when you and I first talked a while back. And that's this idea you mentioned about co-locating research and development as a manufacturing organization. Can you explain what you mean by co-locating R&D? Absolutely. Co-locating R&D is where you have the research and development team and their, their facilities in the exact same physical location as manufacturing. So for example, in our facility of 130,000 square foot facility in San Jose, California, around 30 to 40,000 square feet is dedicated to R&D and the balance is dedicated to manufacturing. Okay, perfect. And so, you know, I, I think as you think about this concept, you know, one of the things that you, you and I were talking about a little bit recently was, you know, when decades ago, frankly, manufacturing in the U.S. started moving offshores, you know, a lot of this was for cost reasons. And, you know, now, now here we are years later and, and you, know, you think about, well, what's lost? And especially from an innovation perspective, I know you have some, some opinions about this. So I'd love to hear you kind of break down, you know, yeah, there may be a cost advantage or at least on the surface, but what's really lost? And, and in particular, what's lost when you think about product innovation? Absolutely. So yeah, as you mentioned, there's definitely a cost advantage to manufacturing overseas. It, there's there's no, no doubt about that. But one has to put that cost advantage in the context of the competitive nature of, of industries. And I think what happens is the innovation advantage of co-locating R&D dwarfs any cost increase you may incur. Let me give you an example. So typically, the way it works or has worked is an R&D scientist would have an idea about how to make a process better, make a product better. In order to get that into the hands of a consumer, they would first need to plan a trip to typically Asia, execute that trip, get the idea off the ground, be there for a week. They haven't, they're not there long enough to actually affect change or long enough to just kind of give some ideas, come home, you know, watch from afar how the change has been instantiated, go back, come home, go back. And then ultimately, once the change is finally implemented, well, then you have, let's just say it's two quarters, three quarters, then you have another quarter of material on the water. And you're really talking about almost a year from the time innovation is nailed in a lab to the time it hits the, is reshored in terms of finished goods. If you were to compare that with the model where you co-locate R&D and manufacturing, you can literally have the engineers walk across the factory floor, speak to the appropriate leaders about how we would improve, either if it's a new, introduce a new technology or improve an existing technology, they collectively can work together. There's you know, no culture barrier. There's no language barrier. And you, there was a consistent 
effort to work on improving something. And so you see changes literally within 30, 40 days that otherwise would take almost a year. And so the pace of innovation is so much faster when, you, when your research and development team is able to walk and talk to the manufacturing team. In addition, because they're co-located, there is built-in empathy. They can understand each other. They can see how the line is operating, how the operators need to function, how the robots need to function, and they can understand the constraints of their innovation much faster, and it actually leads to a better design going in. And so um, while, yes, we will pay more for our manufacturing facility to be located in the United States on a bottom-line basis, uh, our ability to drive innovation is far superior to what I've experienced. And you know, I'll say the proof of the pudding is in eating. I mentioned that we just launched our product. You know, the solar industry has been around for 30, 40 years. I've never seen a solar product launched with the fanfare that we received this past week. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, there's so there's so much that just doesn't show up on the PNL, right? It's it's all the it's the opportunity costs, it's the efficiencies, it's the you know satisfaction of your team, and uh, you're not burnt not burning out the best people, and being able to attract the best people. And I'm gonna have you talk about that one in just a minute here. But you know, if, if you're just strictly looking at numbers on paper, there's so much that that you miss, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let me just go a step further. Yeah, so please. Each, each country has its own competitive strengths and competitive advantages. Right? So for example, I don't think that there is a better place to manufacture goods than most Asian countries in terms of if costs are only, if they're only metric. Like you're not going to make something cheaper in the United States than in Asia. Like just even look at the environmental considerations, uh, let alone the, the standard of living over there. So why try to, in a global industry, why try to compete when you're at an inherent disadvantage? On the other hand, there's a reason why the United States has, you know, if you think about the largest companies in the world, how many of them were spawned in the United States? How many of them were spawned in the United States in the last 10 or 15 years? The United States does have this tremendous culture and heritage of innovation. The idea that it's okay to fail is really unique to the United States. That's something that I've seen. And so what we're able to do by co-locating R&D with, man with manufacturers, so we give up a little on cost, but we're saying we're going to gain more on innovation, gain more on the ability to bring breakthrough technologies into the hands of our customers sooner. And thus, we're going to be able to capture margin that otherwise we wouldn't capture. So it's, it's like, you know, I always make the, uh, there's a famous expression, bringing a knife to the gunfight. You're never going to outcost the Chinese or you're never going to outcost the Koreans, right? Those, they can, they can suck cost out of a manufacturing facility like there's no one's business. Therefore, in order to compete, you need to out-innovate and one part of innovation is actually getting the, the innovation to market much more quickly. And you're only going to do that by co-locating research and development with R&D. Yeah, that's, no, that's well said. Well, you know, it's no secret that one of the biggest challenges facing the manufacturing sector right now, and frankly, our economy as a whole, is attracting and retaining talent, right? Mm -hmm. And I've, I've heard you say that the best talent doesn't want to spend half their lives traveling back and forth to Asia on airplanes. So talk about this a little bit and, and how it applies in, in this particular, um, you know, the context of, of this conversation we're having. Yeah. So uh, a learning for myself is when we first decided to have the co-location with our R&D and manufacturing, it was really to attract the research and development engineers. And, and there the, the pitch is, look, you don't need to fly to Asia, as I mentioned. So if you have a Monday morning meeting, you're leaving on Saturday, you're there all week, you don't get back until the following you know, Saturday. So there's a, a week of your world that's been gone. And then if you have the jet lag, and that's really unappealing to R&D folks. They don't want to do that. They don't want to have to spend, you know, I actually work with people who spend three, four or five months in the Philippines to get products up and running. And you just can't recruit that type of talent because now they're like, ah, oh, I'm just going to go work at Facebook. Or I'm going to work at Google. I'm going to work at Apple. And so that definitely appeals to them. But similarly, the manufacturing professionals in the United States who are used to traveling around the world, because look, if you're a 
you're in manufacturing R&D or if you're someone who's position, whose job it is to build out factories, you're used to spending your, your time on airplanes. We've actually been able to recruit those people as well because they love the fact that they're able to get cutting edge technology into their lines faster. And so for us, it's been a huge boon to recruit the PhDs and masters in chemistry, engineering for the development side. But similarly, we've been able to attract world-class operational leadership. And then of course, the last thing is for the, for the line workers, they love the fact that the R&D team spends time with them. Like I, I will never forget, we have a young engineer who literally spent three or four days analyzing one of our circuit formation stations and really establishing relationships with the operators. And they love that. And all of a sudden, you know, we're hiring for another shift. And sure enough, all the operators on our circuit formation station are trying to get their friends there because in that they recognize the fact that this is just not a typical factory, right? This is something where things are going to be changing, things are going to be improving, and they get to talk to management. Uh, you know, they think all the R&D team is management. And so it's really been a, a fantastic, it's been a successful experiment and one that we anticipate scaling. That's great. You know, as, as you think about you know, the, the recent product launch and just what GAF Energy, I know you guys are a very young company. What have you guys done from a business model perspective, maybe that you haven't touched on yet to bring some of these concepts you're talking about to life? Yeah. So I think one of the nice things as from a business model perspective is we're a private company and we have uh, intentions to stay that way. That allows, right, there's a certain amount of long-term vision that one needs to put into if you're going to make this change, right? This is not a short-term investment. It's not going to pay off in two or three years. And so as a private company with the heritage of manufacturing products close to where they're consumed, uh, we've been able to take a long-term view. And so what that has allowed us to do is take the chance on manufacturing in the United States. I think that um, the other, uh, I don't know if this is necessarily a business model innovation, it's certainly one for, for roofing, and that is parse the products, parse the, the business problem into who can do what better. So we know roofers can, are excellent at selling products and getting new customers. And so we fully focused on a product that's designed for roofers to be installed. And then any parts of that product that roofers don't like to do. So for example, roofers are not electricians. We have found partners and we have found our own ways to augment the full value chain with uh, people who are good at that part of it. In other words, we're not trying to jam a square peg into a round hole, but rather we're really crafting the product we want for the channel in which we want to sell it. And anything that's periphery, we're finding different partners to fill that hole as opposed to trying to make our channel partners fill it. Martin, what advice can you give other manufacturing executives who are listening right now about you know how to apply some of you what you've been talking about or getting started with reshoring or co-location of R&D? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, you know many, many manufacturing executives are operationally focused and everything needs to be measured on the, at the bottom line. There is, and in doing so, you're handicapping your sales from innovation. And so I really think that you have to look at, do you have the ability to invent new products faster or even take costs out of existing products faster through innovation than your competition? And in doing so, you should consider domestic manufacturing. Similarly, I think that you need to take the full view of what the true cost is of operating a facility overseas. You have to add in, you know, how much working capital am I tying up on the water? How much are these trips costing? How much more am I paying in recruiting fees? How much more am I paying in salaries to get someone who's willing to spend their time on an airplane, right? Is it really, you know, especially once you come out of Asia, right? There's a lot of, you know, if we start looking at Mexico, uh, South America, the cost difference, it's still cheaper, but it's, you know, it's 
much the, the delta on the bottom line is much lower, but still you still have the same problems of people being away from their home. And especially now, and we all did this pre-COVID. I can't imagine doing this in a COVID era, COVID era, right? COVID's not going away. I think what people will find is people are going to be less uh, likely to want to fly overseas and therefore look at what the benefits you can bring to on the top line and on the margin, as opposed to just the bottom line. And I think that when you look at those benefits, I think that those people who take the chance on uh, reshoring uh, will be rewarded. Martin, is there anything you would like to add to this conversation that I did not ask you about? Yes. Yeah, so one thing you didn't ask me about, which is we actually made the decision to reshore before the supply chain disaster of 2000, 2000, uh, 2020 and 21. And so I think that that's the one area where while 75%, 80% of our content is domestic, the 25% that is, because so much of our, of our supply chain is domestic, when we're looking at safety stock to have to ensure the factory can continue to operate uh, and the risk of supply uh, hiccups, the amount of working capital tied up is much lower because we're domestically located. We ended up relocated domestically again because our parent company has a heritage of building things where they're consumed because they want to make sure they can get that consumer feedback in. But once you add the supply chain woes and the cost of safety stock to keep your facilities up and running, you know your choice is either go 100% overseas, in which case you have the disadvantage you mentioned, but um, by coming domestically, you're, you're in a much better position to react uh, when there's supply chain shocks and when there are, you're tying up much, much uh, a smaller portion of your balance sheet on safety stock in order to keep the factory running than if you were... Um, uh, found yourself manufacturing elsewhere. So that's a, that's an important point as well. Well, Martin, this was a really great conversation. I appreciate you doing this today. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to share, share a little experience here. Yeah. We'll tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and also where they can learn more about GAF energy. Certainly. I'm on LinkedIn, Martin DeBono, GAF energy. And then our website is gaf.energy, gaf.energy. Take a look. We've got some innovative products facilities in California and happy to talk with other manufacturing execs on best practices and ideas as to the way we can get, you know, more innovation in manufacturing back to the United States. Perfect. Well, I appreciate that. And, and congrats on the product launch and all the success you've had to date. It sounds like you guys are doing some pretty awesome and innovative things. Thank you so much. Well, Martin, again, thanks for doing this. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of the Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.